0: Listening to a podcast of local news from the county of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity.
1: Welcome to the 1869th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for the 10th of March 2022. The editor of this edition is Katrina, the producer is Mary, and your readers are David and Carol. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And now for the headlines. He was the kindest heart. Ed Sheeran's tribute to Shane Warne.
0: As long as there is war, I will continue. I will not stop.
1: Trust confirms decision to shut town's middle schools.
0: Council plans to change taxi policy after backlash.
1: Suffolk superstar Ed Sheeran has paid tribute to his amazing friend Shane Warne after the Australian cricketer died aged 52. The record-breaking Australian cricketer could not be revived after being found unresponsive in his thailand villa after suffering a suspected heart attack on friday march the fourth sheeran said he spoke to warn on the phone this week and said he was absolutely gutted to hear about the news shane was the kindest heart and always went above and beyond to make people feel welcome and special such a gentleman he gave so many hours and years of his life to bring joy to others and was such an amazing friend to me. In 2020, Warren supported the Ed Sheeran Made in Suffolk Legacy Auction, donating a number of prizes to the auction to raise money for good causes in Suffolk. Meanwhile, sports pundit Gabby Logan paid tribute to Shane Warren, calling him a rock and roll sports legend. The 48-year-old TV presenter appeared with Warren in 2012 on Sky One's sports panel show, A league of their own. She tweeted, There really are very few genuine sporting legends, rock and roll sports stars who transcend their genre. Shane was absolutely one of those. Rest in peace. As the England cricket team prepare for a three test series against the West Indies in the Caribbean, the players and umpires stood for a minute's silence in honor of Warren. In 2016, Warren took part in the Australian version of the TV programme I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Warren was the joint-leading wicket-taker as Australia won the 1999 World Cup and finished with 293 one-day dismissals in 194 matches. He ended his illustrious 15-year international career in 2007.
0: Defiant message as aid floods in for refugees fleeing conflict. As communities pull together to aid war-torn Ukraine, for one woman, the mission to help is deeply personal. Karolina Mazarek has relatives in Ukraine who are living day by day, but she has already lost two uncles in the Russian invasion. She has opened up her Thetford home as a drop-off point for donations and is using her skills as a translator to help refugees fleeing the conflict. The 24-year-old of Polish and Ukrainian heritage said I was very connected with my Ukrainian family and I cannot just sit here and do nothing. I am very lucky to be in the UK at this time. I am safe and my daughter is safe. If each person per day does one good thing then the situation will get better. At the moment I am translating. I left my number on Polish and Ukrainian websites. If somebody has a problem with communication, I can help because I speak Polish, Russian, Ukrainian, and English. There are so many Polish people on the border who are trying to help Ukrainian people in need, so I am helping them connect. In the UK, I have opened a drop-off point from my own home. I'm collecting medicine, bandages, dry food, water, formula mix for children nappies and sanitary products. However, for as long as there is war, I will continue to research for drivers and I won't stop while this is going on. And in Bury St Edmonds, Town Mayor Peter Thompson has also been doing all he can. He has been working with Nurse Anne-Rita Lamperia and Leon Edwards to establish a drop-off point at the Youth Centre on the Morton Hall Estate and said he had been overwhelmed by the number of donations made.
1: An education trust is to press ahead with proposals to shut the last surviving middle schools in Barry St Edmunds. Unity Schools Partnership intends to close Horringer Court and Wesley Middle Schools in Bury St Edmunds in August 2023, and extend the age ranges of the town's Tollgate Primary and County Upper Schools. It follows a four-week public consultation on the plans in which parents, counsellors and the public raised concerns about the impact on pupils' education and the potential loss of community facilities. Unity says pupil numbers at the middle schools have diminished from 841 in 2018 to an expected 694 in 2022 and 550 in 2024. The trust board will write to the Department for Education for a final decision. As part of the move, County Upper would teach pupils in years seven and eight at the Wesley site. Unity wants to carry out further work on developing specialist facilities for the proposed expanded Tollgate Primary School. The trust would also subsidise transport to Wesley and Horringer Court schools during 2022 to 23, so that there is no increase in costs families as a result of the changes. West Suffolk District Councillor Clive Springett, who represents the Minden Ward, was among a group of councillors who called for unity to give the middle schools more time to see if numbers increased before making a decision. He said the move to shut the two Ofsted-rated good schools was devastating and felt there was an ideal opportunity to explore further educational provision at the Wesley site either by moving County Upper there or to provide a school to cater for future residential development. However, Councillor David Nettleton, who was not part of the group, as he wanted to keep County Upper at its current site, said the decision was probably the best way forward, but was concerned about a build-up of traffic in Tollgate Lane and Beaton's Way. Christine Quinn, Chair of the Trust, of the Trust Board, said the overall rationale for the proposals is strong, and they were in the best interests of the education of children in Bury St Edmunds and surrounding areas, both now and in the future.
0: West Suffolk Council plans to change a taxi policy after backlash. West Suffolk Council plans to change a policy which would have seen cab drivers having to make new hackney carriage taxis wheelchair accessible following a furious backlash last summer. West Suffolk Council will launch a consultation with taxi drivers and operators and groups representing those with disability or mobility issues on March the 23rd, asking for views on three planned changes to its Hackney Carriage and Private Hire Conditions Policy Handbook. It follows the outcomes of an independent survey, which was done alongside a study of taxi provision across West Suffolk last autumn. The three proposed changes are to remove all wheelchair accessible requirements for Hackney Carriage Vehicle Licensees, to merge the two taxi zones in the district into one single zone and to increase the maximum age of vehicle limit to 15 years old. But one taxi driver in West Suffolk, Mark Goodchild, said removing the A WAV policy completely was not a good idea as there was still some need for those type of vehicles. He added he was against merging two zones into one as this would lead to some ranks being flooded and others left unattended causing a congestion and a pollution as drivers would have to drive around to find a rank space. A West Suffolk Council spokesman said The proposals, which aren't yet out to consultation, make clear that this doesn't mean the end of WAV provision in West Suffolk, nor our legal duty to ensure provision is in place and customer needs are met. What the the proposals do illustrate as a collective package is that we have listened to and responded to the views given by taxi customers and the trade. While the proposals offer a short-term approach, we want to work with the local drivers, operators and the community to develop a long-term comprehensive plan that balances an accessible and green fleet with one which is safe and thriving. We did ask the trade for alternative ways of fairly administering a WAV policy and no suggestions were put forward. Once consultation opens, The trade will have a further opportunity to provide feedback.
1: And now for the general news. Councillors have delivered a damning assessment of giant solar farm plans dubbed deeply unsatisfactory and unsuitable that will permanently change a unique part of Suffolk. Suffolk County Council's Cabinet unanimously agreed its response to object to the development consent order for Sunneca solar farm in West Suffolk. The project, which would span 981 hectares, which is 2,782 acres, of agricultural land for a 40-year lifespan to become the largest solar farm proposed in the UK, would represent an important opportunity to help meet the urgent national need for new, renewable means of energy generation, according to developers. But Suffolk County Council raised a host of concerns over the plans and the engagement work to date, and stressed that while it was supportive of renewable energy generation, it couldn't be used to justify poorly developed schemes in the wrong location, of inappropriate scale, lacking in sufficient details, and without due regard being made to local communities. Among issues raised were fears it would, would dramatically change the landscape of the area for generations and said the developers' studies had underestimated import, impo- impacts. The solar farm plans include four main sites grouped into Seneca East, largely in Suffolk, and Seneca West in Cambridgeshire. In Suffolk, Seneca East A incorporates land north of Freckenham and south-east of Islum, while Seneca B lies between Freckenham, Worlington and Red Lodge. A final decision will be made by the Secretary of State.
0: Volunteer judges in this year's Berry in Bloom competition will be looking at the sustainability credentials of front gardens for the first time. The Berry in Bloom Certificate of Merit Scheme, awarded to the best residential and commercial front gardens in Berries and Edmunds, will be working to new guidelines in 2022 following changes made by the Royal Horticultural Society. Branded evolution, not revolution, the RHS changes mean the Berry and Bloom volunteer judging team will now be looking at gardens sustainability credentials to make a more meaningful contribution to reducing climate change and supporting wildlife. As well as colours, texture and foliage, Points will now be awarded for aspects including bee and butterfly friendly plants, wildlife water features, and rainwater harvesting. Lynn Wright, who is the Berry and Bloom Certificate of Merit Coordinator, said the RHS guidance recommends rethinking our planting strategy, so consider this as evolution, not revolution. Garden planting won't change overnight, but this is the way forward to encourage wildlife by some simple changes to plant selection and watering options. A traditional style of garden will still be able to score well, but by selecting a more diverse range of planting, additional points can be awarded. David Irvin, who is the Berry and Bloom coordinator, said, Colour. And attention to detail will always be an important issue. However, sustainability is a new consideration. In 2021, Berry and Bloom used nearly a hundred volunteer judges to cover every part of the town covered by the Berry Town Council. Lynn added maps are typically updated every six to nine months, so, for some new build areas in Berry, suitable maps might not be available in 2022 to be included in this scheme the area has to be covered by the borough boundaries so if currently listed as Ruffham, for example this does not fall within the qualifying area judging will take place in july and for more information about becoming a volunteer judge contact lynn wright at certificates at berry in bloom Dot .org.uk. Dot
1: the Beresford St Edmunds Farmers Club has elected the first female chair of its management committee in its 75-year history. Karen Ridgen has been elected after playing an invaluable role in ensuring the Northgate Street Club's future, despite the challenges of the pandemic. She takes over from Simon Spence QC, who has been the club's chair for the past four years and stood down at last week's AGM. Ms. Ridgen has been a member of the Eight Strong Management Committee for the past three years and has professional qualifications in catering, front of house expertise and over 30 years accounts experience. She has lived and worked in Bury for many years including in a finance and administration role for local farmers for the past 11 years. The club was founded in 1947 primarily for farmers and professionals who worked alongside them. Over the years, membership has changed and includes a variety of individuals and businesses. The club is also available to book for weddings, parties and corporate events. Ms. Ridgeon said, I'm delighted to be stepping into the role of what promises to be a very positive time. We have recently appointed a talented new chef patron, Tom Laughlin, who is inspiring members to eat increasingly frequently at the club with his culinary skills. We're also seeing applications from new members who wish to join us and enjoy all the club has to offer.
0: Residents have expressed their disappointment that a piece of their town's history was removed after an an old signal box was demolished. People in Brandon took to social media on Saturday to discuss the loss of the 1930s building on the level crossing on the Norfolk-Suffolk border with some sharing their surprise as they thought it had been saved from a demolition in recent years. Ian Marshall said, More of Brandon's history gone. Another part of old Brandon gone. Such a shame. I remember 1968. I was lucky to have gone inside to see it. It was great. Sorry to see it destroyed, said Anne Fleet. Sandra Stannard added, I thought it was to be saved. Such a sad day, more history gone. Was it really in the way? The signal box was last used in 2011 and there were attempts from the, the now disbanded Friends of Brandon Station to try and get the building listed, but that was never achieved. After its closure, internal pieces, such as the levers inside, were distributed out to other stations. In 2018, Richard Parrott of Wheating, who started the village's steam rally more than 50 years ago, tried to save it from being demolished. There were others, though, who felt the demolition of the signal box was the right decision. David Shepherd said, it served no purpose anymore. There was no access to it due to being so near the line. The insides were removed years ago. Anything usable has been reclaimed for use elsewhere. The structure was becoming unsafe. A spokesperson for Network Rail added, We understand community interest in old railway buildings like signal boxes, and where possible we work with heritage railways and other interested parties to distribute parts, such as the levers. Unfortunately, the boxes cost a lot to maintain, and we have to ensure we manage public money effectively. We made plans to demolish the box last summer and offered the removable parts to local groups and the community. The demolition was was completed last weekend. It follows the demolition of the Victorian Lakenheath signal box in September last year. At the time, the building was one of only 166 that remained in the country, although it had been out of use for several years.
1: Staff at a Suffolk farm have been left heartbroken and frustrated after a suspect arson attack saw one of their buildings burn to the ground. Farm manager Sue Smith said she noticed a log shed at the Field of Dreams farm in Thurston had burnt down when she arrived at work on Saturday. Miss Smith said, I got here at 9am and as I drove past the farm to come to the entry I noticed there was some smouldering but it didn't register that it was actually the shed. I went straight over there, and it wasn't until I got out of my vehicle that I realised that the shed had been burnt down. Miss Smith also said their farm's polytunnel was also damaged at some point in the evening. It's completely heartbreaking, Miss Smith said. One of the gentlemen who volunteers here is in his seventies, and he comes twice a week, and he is the one who does the main part of chopping up the rings and the netting of the kindling and logs, and he was just as shocked. "'He has spent years working on everything he has done, "'and now it has just gone. "'The shed was where the team would make the kindling "'and house the generators and stock that they sell in the farm shop. "'It's all gone, it's all perished,' Miss Smith said. "'We've since discovered we are not actually insured for the shed itself, "'but we should be able to get something back for the generators, "'so it is not all negative, "'but we have still got to try and get the shed replaced somehow.' A spokesman for Suffolk Police said an investigation into the cause of the fire is underway. A Suffolk Fire and Rescue Service said a crew from Bury St Edmunds attended following contact from police to reports of smouldering in a woodshed. Crew used small gear to damp down and make the shed safe. Miss said a GoFundMe may be set up as a way to raise funds for a new shed for the farm.
0: A man from Thurston is set to challenge himself to cycle 70 miles ahead of his 70th birthday, all to raise money for East Anglia's children's hospices each. Ian Turner is set to cycle in the charity's Ride for Life fundraiser set to take place in May. Alongside his friend Ian Copping, the pair will cycle just over 70 miles starting in Snetterton, in Norfolk, and finishing in Ipswich. Ian Turner said, I am 70 this year, and I thought 70 years old, doing 70 plus miles, has a bit of a ring to it. I've always done charity events all my life. He hopes to raise £2,000 for the charity. It's a personal challenge for me, but at the same time, I'm raising money for a local children's hospice. With Covid going on, Charities are struggling big time to get money in.
1: And now we have some letters. The first is from Christopher P. Clarke, and he's a master mariner, and it's entitled, Disregard Appears Undimmed. Sir, in April 1982, my ship, the Avalona Star, entered Odessa with a cargo of 5,000 tonnes of frozen three-pound chickens. The Avalona was a 24-knot banana boat built in 1975 at Smith's Stock, Middlesbrough. On this occasion, I was second mate. The entire ship's cargo loaded in Rio Grande, Brazil, three weeks earlier, was discharged in four days and trained to Moscow, the ship's hold, sweepings going to local market. I remembered this after listening to Edward Sturton's Radio 4 BBC Listen Live, Ukraine. How did we get here? One or two of his guest speakers reminded the listeners how Stalin's Russia starved the Ukraine in 1932-33 by removing all food stocks, seed and seed potatoes, from this country to feed the major urban areas and cities of Soviet Russia. Some 3.9 million Ukrainian people died from starvation. It would seem from the events of this last week prove that Russian disregard for Ukrainians is undimmed.
0: And uh, this letter comes from Mick Blackburn and is headed, Russian leaders are all the same, bullies. Well, it's finally happened. Bully boy Putin has invaded a democratic country whose only mistake was not joining NATO. If you look back through history, Russian leaders have always been the same, Any political opposition is ruthlessly put down, with murder and imprisonment being the weapon of choice. They totally control the media and lie to their own population. Putin has modelled himself on Stalin, who was one of the worst Russian leaders ever. I cannot understand why the West is so reliant on Russia for its gas supplies. They have been able to hold European countries to ransom. It's about time we stopped relying on re- relying on uh, countries like Russia and China for so much and re-establish our own industries or one day they will pull the plug and put us back to the Stone Age.
1: The next letter is from Sarah Thompson and she says, PM, not off the hook. Sir, Mr Johnson is paying... Flying visits to various EU countries in an attempt to make him appear more statesmanlike during the tragic and heartbreaking Ukraine crisis. However, having delivered a brutal Brexit, he is now reaping the rewards. No one is interested in a much diminished UK, and we have no standing on the world stage anymore. In addition, this standing will have diminished even further because of his refusal to enable Ukrainian refugees visa-free access. After all, a large number of them speak English in addition to Ukrainian and Russian. European leaders don't understand what he's trying to achieve and pay him lip service. But I can tell them he is trying to escape his troubles at home and desperately hopes that the electorate will forget about the promised public inquiry into his handling of COVID-19. And then there's Partygate. Is he being given a fixed penalty notice? Who else is? Will he keep his promise to release the unreact The Unreaded Acted Sue Gray Report. So many questions, Mr. Johnson. You are not off the hook.
0: And this letter is from Bob Darvell. It's headed, Divisions are there for the world to see. According to the Bible, man or woman has three score years and ten. I shall realise that exact figure this coming September. While there are allowances mentioned for a few further years, I'm not sure I want them. With Brexit, the animosity shown of late towards immigrants, the investigations involving our monarchy and our government, COVID-19, the rising cost of living, the impossible cost of home ownership, fuel and power costs hitting an all-time high, and zero-hour contracts now commonplace, I find our world a very unpleasant unpleasant place to walk. Add to that a developing war in Europe, caused by yet another moron seeking power and glory, and I find myself seeking answers which are no longer available. I have always maintained that the public is controlled by division, and never before has that division been more clearly visible than today. Weapons of war Hatred, power and control are all there right in front of us, but we fail to see it. Our medical workers who save lives are told they cannot have a pay rise, yet we can apparently afford to spend billions of pounds every year on weapons which will kill. Nothing makes any sense anymore. I honestly feel our world is more unstable today than it has ever been in the past.
1: And the final letter comes from Clive Strutt. He says, TTFN to abbreviations. Sir, am I alone in thinking there is an increase in the use of acronyms and abbreviations or initialisms in our everyday life, especially in the written word? I will confess to being of a certain age and not a great fan of social media, but when I do indulge, I often find myself having to consult a dictionary when confronted with some of the more obscure abbreviations or acronyms. It's not just social media that's guilty. Our daily newspapers and magazines increasingly assume the reader is aware of their meaning. Thankfully, this esteemed newspaper rarely falls into that trap. Most professions and trades use abbreviations applicable to their work. Medical, police and teaching vocations are especially keen on this form of shorthand. That's fine when they're preaching to the converted, But as far as we mere mortals listening on the sidelines are concerned, it's confusing at the best, and incomprehensible at the worst. To add to the confusion, abbreviations can refer to more than one subject. To quote but two examples. PC can mean personal computer, or political correctness. A1 can mean artificial intelligence, or, for our beef farming friends, artificial insemination. It doesn't pay to get that one wrong. There are many more such instances. We all use abbreviations or acronyms BBC, NATO, RIP, ATM, RSVP, DIY, ID are but a few examples we take for granted and are generally understood. However, how much easier it would be if writers using the lesser known acronyms or abbreviations defined their meaning bracketed on the first mention? TTFN ta off for now.
0: And um, this comes from our MP, Joe Churchill. Uh, the heading is Putin Must Fail in Ukraine. I usually try to use this article to talk about local issues, my work in Parliament or projects to improve our local communities. However... Following the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, I feel it is important to detail what the UK government and our allies are doing to support Ukraine and push back Putin and his forces. I recently met with the Ukrainian Minister for Agrarian Policy and Food at the Action for Climate Summit. We discussed the situation in his country and that we hoped for a peaceful solution. Unfortunately, this was not to be, and days after this meeting, Putin launched the unprovoked and illegal invasion of Ukraine. The UK and our allies have been clear all along that there would be a severe cost for any further Russian military incursion into Ukraine. We have shown leadership on the global stage in support of Ukraine over these past months and played a leading role in encouraging the West to impose the most severe and coordinated package of sanctions Russia has ever faced in response to Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine. We are strangling the Russian economy with financial sanctions, with the Russian central bank more than doubling its benchmark interest rate to 20% to stem the ruble's fall. In addition to economic sanctions, the UK has worked to support Ukraine's security and defence. We have trained over 22,000 members of the Ukrainian army through Operation Orbital, and since 2019, we have assisted Ukraine to build up and sustain a naval capability. In the months prior to the invasion, we provided extra support in the form of 2,000 anti-armour missiles which the Ukrainians are now putting to good use. The UK has sent further military support to Ukraine since the invasion. More than a thousand British troops have been made ready to support NATO and allies in the event of a human- human- humanitarian crisis. These troops, <coughs> excuse me, these troops are at readiness in the UK to support a humanitarian response in the region should it be needed. We have also deployed more troops to NATO's enhanced forward presence than any other ally. On Sunday, we announced that the UK was sending an additional £40 million pounds in humanitarian aid to Ukraine, bringing the total amount of UK aid pledged this year to £220 million. The UK is also guaranteeing up to $500 million of loans to Ukraine through multilateral development banks. I know constituents have expressed their desire to welcome Ukrainians into into the UK fleeing the current conflict. This week, the government announced the UK could take in 200,000 or more Ukrainian refugees as we extend our help to help to more people fleeing the war the scheme allowing close relatives of ukrainian people who are settled in the uk to come over will be widened to include adult parents grandparents children over 18 and siblings uk firms will also be able to sponsor a ukrainian entering the country the family scheme and the sponsorship pathway would allow Ukrainians to live in the UK for an initial 12 months and they would be able to work and access public services. This is very welcome news and I know Suffolk will be ready to welcome any Ukrainians needing our help. As I am sure you will appreciate, this is a fast moving situation which is subject to change both on the ground and in terms of aid and support. I will endeavour to keep constituents up to date through regular updates on my social media and websites and would encourage anyone with family in Ukraine needing help to contact my office. My thoughts are with the Ukrainian people and their president, whose defiance, courage and patriotism in the face of foreign aggression is inspiring. Putin must fail. The UK government Standing alongside our friends in Ukraine and allies around the world, using all possible means at its disposal at its uh, disposal, is urgently engaged upon ensuring he does.
1: And now we have a feature. House reawakens for a new season. The dust sheets are set to be removed as Iquith House prepares to open on Monday. Camille Berryman went behind closed doors. As we enter Ickworth House's rotunda, there is a peaceful sense of calm. The shutters are closed, but in the dim morning light, Berry Free Press photographer Mecca Morton and I can see the outlines of furniture and treasures underneath dust sheets hidden from view. But all of that is about to change, as Ickworth property curator Chloe Woodrow tells us. This is the week we are starting to throw the covers off and get ready to open again, she says. Apart from a few days at Christmas, the house has been closed to the public since the end of October. The winter period allows us to focus on our conservation work, says Chloe. We do a deep clean. We take each room and go from the top to the bottom. We put up scaffolding and get as high as we can to the ceiling and work down. It is what you might do to your own home for spring cleaning, but on a bigger scale. As part of the project, each object in each room is thoroughly checked to assess its condition and whether it has changed over time. We clean almost everything, says Chloe. For paintings, we might dust the surface of the canvas using soft brushes to just lift the dust off. However, some items, like chandeliers and the carpets, are cleaned in rotation and we don't do them every year. Once we have cleaned an object, we cover it and then it means it will not get dusty before we open again in the spring. For each room the process takes about a week, depending on its size and contents. I have been here 13 years, and seeing it like this during the winter months, when the house is closed, it is how I imagine how it would have been in the 1930s, with the servants coming out to get the house ready for the family, says Chloe. I feel I like I like know this house well. When I first came here I fell in love with it, and I knew this was the property for me. During winter, old buildings like this rest, and you can hear all their noises and quirks. But spring is an exciting time. We throw the covers off and move the furniture back. We get it looking beautiful, and we love to share the house and its collections with the public. In the days before reopening, the nine strong House and Collection staff team are joined by experienced volunteers to get the house ready for its first visitors of the season which could be a busy one. In terms of visitors, Ickworth has just had the busiest January and February we've ever seen, says Chloe. Housewise, last year we had the same. We think it was because visitors were wanting to get out and see some culture and heritage and beautiful objects. We had a lot of visitors who were new National Trust members or new visitors, which was fantastic. Hopefully it will continue. Ickworth House was the vision of the 4th Earl of Bristol, was known as the Earl Bishop. On inheriting the Ickwith estate, the Earl Bishop had a vision to build a house to be a museum or art gallery, with the rotunda his home and the east and west wings to be gallery spaces for the thousands of objects he had amassed from abroad. We talk of ourselves here as a treasure house, as we're not really a country house, and we've got all these important collections, says Chloe. Started in 1795, the building was still a shell when the Earl Bishop died in 1803. His son was left to complete his vision. Later, generations of the family lived in the East Wing, and instead mainly opened the Rotunda for parties or special occasions. The West Wing was built purely for symmetry, and remained an empty shell until 2003. In the 1930s, the Fourth Marquess decided to ban smoking in the house, and cho- and. Clo- and chose one room to be the smoking room this week the smoking room is one of the spaces undergoing final preparations ready for reopening in this room we tend to change the paintings around each year to get the essence of an art gallery we've got two paintings which were in this room currently at the Tate Britain which will be coming home soon says Chloe who estimates 70 percent of the Ickworth collection is on display at any one time the rest is in protective storerooms. Over the past two years, we've had a major roof project, so two thousand, two 000 to 3,000 items were moved to different storage areas of the site as a result. Now we're moving them back again, she says. Meanwhile, in the upstairs silver room, the only preparations needed for Monday will be to turn on the lights and open the shutters. The room's 800 pieces of silver and silver gilt were collected by the second earl. He was an ambassador and part of his job was to throw incredibly elaborate parties but rather than being paid he was given an allowance of silver for the party which he could then keep. Chloe says during the winter we take each piece out and check the condition. We clean inside the cases and then assess the silver and see if it needs any cleaning. If it is in good condition we don't clean it at all as if we can avoid cleaning it is better for the longevity of the object. Back downstairs, the bright colours of the library carpet are evidence of some of this winter's hard work. The team strives to use traditional cleaning methods where possible, so the library carpet was given a thorough beating to get rid of its dust. We finally burned some calories, but it was worth it. When visitors came, it comes. it means all of our hard work is shared and celebrated. It really is nice to welcome people back, says Chloe.
0: And back to um, some news. A rural electric bus service, food bank support, and help for energy inefficient homes are set to be among investment plans at Mid Suffolk District Council in the year ahead. The authority last week passed its 2022 budget, which included proposals by the opposition Green and Liberal Democrat group to invest £820,000. From the Growth and Efficiency Fund to secure two electric buses that will deliver scheduled rural services not currently being met. The Conservative and Independent Administration has also said it will bring forward plans over the next year to invest nearly £1 million of additional government grants. John Whitehead, who is the Conservative Cabinet Member for Finance, said the intention was to include an uplift in rural community grants and increase councillor locality grants. He said officers were investigating financial support for food banks and looking at how to provide a free means-tested energy performance certificate service for the most energy-inefficient homes in the district. We want to bring those to Cabinet at the earliest opportunity as fully-fledged and deliverable initiatives, Councillor Whitehead said. We want to really help those residents that are struggling the most. It follows a pledge in November to invest £5.1 million in 39 schemes to help communities recovering from the COVID pandemic. Those schemes will be delivered this year and next. The Green and Liberal Democrat bus plans. Aim to address a gap in public transport services and support those in rural communities, particularly for those who cannot drive. It will see two minibus-size electric buses established and running scheduled services connecting rural communities. Group Deputy Leader John Field said it would be filling a gap in services rather than competing with existing services. He said... It's pleasing to find that the administration agreed that our proposal met a real need for scheduled public transport in rural areas. We can now work together to refine it and deliver what people want and need. Group leader Andy Mellon added, Many villages in our district have little or no bus provision at all, so a modest scheduled route will provide them with reliable access to local services. We will help contain cost of living increases with affordable fares while improving air quality in the towns and lessening climate harming emissions. Plans for the service will now be drawn up but it is hoped it can be up and running within a few months. The authority last week unanimously agreed to the 2022-23 budget which proposes a freeze on the district's portion of the council tax bill.
1: A 27-year-old sales worker has described the shock of finding out the design agency he was working for was fake. Jordan Carter, who now lives in London but grew up in Westrow, worked in the sales team at Madbird from roughly October 2020 to March 2021. The entire job was based from home and he spent hours trying to sign deals with giant brands, including Comic Relief. But what he, alongside dozens of other staff, did not realise was they were working for a fake company. The revelations came to a BBC documentary, Jobfished, which aired last week and detailed how creative director Ali Ayad built fake profiles for staff and allegedly stole work from other established agencies. Now, Jordan is working in recruitment in London, but said he, his family and friends were in shock when they found out Madbird was a con. It was hard to even tell your mates, he said. Obviously, I was locked down with my parents and girlfriend, and everyone was just as shocked, really. My dad just couldn't believe it. He added, there were just so many emotions, really. I was more angry with him, Allie. I wasn't really sad; I was almost relieved that I was kind of done with it, done with it in a way, and at the same time, I wasn't shocked. Jordan said there were a few red flags at the start of his stint at Madbird, but by mid-October, things were starting to pick up. And a new member of the team, Antonia Stewart, joined with almost ten years of marketing experience. He was also reporting to Chris Ducey, a sales manager who was offering him and his colleagues training. The reason I stayed for so long it was because mid-October, November, I was starting to get the hang of the work, and there was training by Chris and a few others. So obviously, it was a bit of a slow start but the things that they were potentially saying that was going to happen and what I could get out of it sounded great and sounded like a great opportunity going forward, said Jordan. He added, I was reporting to someone who was being conned as well. It wasn't like I was just working for nothing. It didn't feel like that. Now Jordan is finished with Madbird and working in London. He said he was feeling positive. He is still awaiting the result of a tribunal, the results of which Ali has appealed.
0: A great-great-grandmother from Thetford, who survived two World War II bombings, has celebrated her 102nd birthday. Phyllis Manning was joined by family members at Larchwood Cares Alexander Court Care Home to celebrate the milestone. The second eldest of 11 children, the 102-year-old has many wartime memories. While she and her husband John were living at Methwold Air Base, they were lucky to come away unscathed when a bomber's door malfunctioned and sent explosive ordnance spilling across the runway. Another incident saw the couple diving for cover when a walk through a churchyard was disrupted by a bombing raid. Phyllis had many jobs over the years, including running a post office, sewing parachutes and caring for older people. In Methwold, Phyllis took a job at a school giving one-to-one support to children struggling with reading. Phyllis said, I've always tried to keep myself as busy as possible and do my bit for the community.
1: St Edmundsbury Cathedral had some very unusual guests as two noisy dinosaurs came to visit. The cathedral hosted an educational dinosaur event with Teach Rex, a company which provides workshops for children. There were games and educational talks about the beasts as well as dinosaur-shaped biscuits to be had. Kim Judge from the Cathedral's Learning Hub and one of the organisers of the event said the day was a success. The feedback from children and parents was great. The children left excited and they enjoyed the show, she said. I think it makes the Cathedral accessible to everybody and so we get people walk into the Cathedral from all walks of life. I think it's important for the cathedral to have the presence of children in it and enjoying themselves. Mum of two, Karen Todd, said all the children had a great time. It was quite educational. They talked about where they found the fossils of the Velociraptors, she said, and they're like little sponges at this age. They take on so much information and it's just expanding their minds. Teach Rex, based in Wirral in the north-west, travels all around the country giving workshops. Joe Parsonage, co-founder, explained the importance of bringing the topic of dinosaurs alive for children. There's this misconception that children need to grow out of dinosaurs, but they absolutely don't need to do that. They can have amazing careers in it, and we hope that we have sparked that engagement and excitement in them.
0: Birds at sites near Elmswell and Redgrave were to be culled after cases of bird flu were identified. A three kilometre protection zone and a ten kilometre surveillance zone were put in place around the premises. Christine Middlemiss, the, the government's chief vet, said scrupulous biosecurity remains absolutely critical to help prevent the spread of the disease.
1: The co-op food branch in Bury St Edmunds recently held an event to raise awareness around fair trade. A stall was set up on February the 23rd with a hamper raffled to shoppers. The special event was part of Fair Trade Fortnight, this year themed around climate justice and sustainability. Members of the Berry Fair Trade Partnership hosted the event. A co-op member pioneer coordinator, Ruth Crane, was also in attendance to help organise. Mrs Crane liaises with local community groups, interests and businesses in hosting and boosting fair trade. She said, representatives from Wesley Middle School came to talk about fair trade and what they've been learning about globalisation. We had young children that came to the store to do a fair trade scavenger hunt. They were rewarded with a bar of fair trade chocolate.
0: Suffolk County Council is ceasing its contract with a Russian-owned energy supplier due to the invasion of Ukraine. The authority announced it was breaking away from its contract with Gazprom, held by its company Virtas. Leader Matthew Hicks said, When Vladimir Putin made the immoral and utterly reprehensible decision to invade Ukraine, I instructed officers last week to review our contract with Russian-owned energy company Gazprom.
1: A village church was set aglow with Victorian oil lamps for a display last weekend. Jason Kiermein, alongside the Historic Lighting Club, showcased approximately 200 lamps at Hitcham Parish Church to celebrate the restoration of the church's bells. As well as the light display, the village bell ringers rang the bells on their own for the first time. Jason said we were putting on a fairly large oil lamp display of all the historic oil lamps, from grand houses in Victorian times to the more industrial, mundane ones. Hitcham Church is a beautiful historic building and would have been originally lit by oil lamps, so it will give people a very good idea of how the church would have appeared. And so people enjoyed the display last Saturday on March the 5th.
0: Former West Suffolk Council officers... The former NHS Health Centre, a gym and a library in Mildenhall will be demolished after approval was granted on Wednesday. The Council's Development Control Committee discussed the proposed uh, demolition on the College Heath Road site and voted for it to go ahead.
1: And here's another feature. On a wing and a prayer... Now termed the Abbey Gardens, the owner of of these, Frederick Harvey Marquess of Bristol, looked further to their creator, Nathaniel Hodson, in 1835, to come up with suggestions for a menagerie similar to that of London Zoo, the world's first that opened in 1828. So in 1837 Henry Turner, who would also be the librarian of the Mechanics Institute and resided in Hospital Road, undertook the role of curator. His shopping list included various waterfowl, exotic pheasants, and small mammals such as guinea pigs and rabbits. As an attraction, it became an instant success, appreciated by Berry's sophisticated residents and visitors to the town alike. Following the two world wars, permanent aviaries against the north curtain wall of the abbey, where once the abbey's brewery, bakery and stable stood, were added to the freestanding aviaries, budges and canaries, proving to be very popular. There was even a pair of peafowl allowed to roam free from 1950 after they had been given to the borough council, though I'm not sure if the mail's calls were appreciated. Nearest to the refreshment kiosk, thought to have been a Georgian orangery, a covered part of the aviary housed a pair of rhesus macaque monkeys given by Wells Pet Shop of Risbygate Street, where it stood adjacent to what is today's Casa Restaurant, formerly the Rising Sun Pub. Wells also donated some small cage birds, which were soon joined by various other birds given by the public amongst them quail and the ubiquitous zebra finches that bred rapidly and could eat you out of house and home. The monkeys were replaced by a pair of green macaques during the tenure of park-keeper Peter Tunner, a lovely, quiet, unassuming man who lived very close by in his Eastgate Street in Eastgate Street, cl- starting his job in nineteen seventy four Eventually, the male monkey was given to a Northamptonshire zoological agent because its mate, Judy, became too aggressive. After this died, it was decided monkeys were out. Over time, more parrot-like species, books, reedrumps, lovebirds, lorikeets and cockatiels were added to the varieties of seed-eating finches and pheasants. Interestingly, Muscovy ducks were originally listed by Henry Turner and a few mallard Mallard are now common on the river Lark, which flows through the gardens, but it is frowned upon for them to be fed, away from their watery habitat, because of the mess they leave, hence being fenced in.
0: And another feature, Beaton showed the way, and this has been put together by uh, local historian Martin Taylor. Beaton's footpath was once the only direct route from the western side of Berries Edmonds to the northern side, Then, no more than a dirt track, it left the corner of the Gibraltar barracks in Newmarket Road, with bramble bushes running parallel, past the barracks firing range into open countryside until it met the unmanned level crossing. After going over this, at your peril, you skirted open fields passing Klondike cottages on your right until you met the top of Tollgate Lane, where the Green Gauge Public House was built in 1957. This was on land formerly in the parish of Fornham All Saints, previously owned by the Gage family of Hengrave Hall. They had brought the Green Gage fruit to England. The Mildenhall estate was the first expansion outside the, the Banluca, the medieval boundary of Bury St Edmunds. One of the boundary cross bases, the Plague Stone, originally stood at the entrance to Beaton's footpath in Newmarket Road. Much moved since, it now stands outside the nearby college. Back in 1630, the land here was called Hammerland, a corruption of an earlier name, Hammerloond. Once owned by Berry Grammar School, this land was rented by a George Beaton until 1836, when he was asked to give up the tenancy. Subsequently, two acres of his St Peter's Barn farm were purchased by the Chesterford and Newmarket Railway Company, for £625 in 1853, thus enabling the Bury to Newmarket line to be completed, and hence the rail crossing. In 1970, an underpass, costing £106,000, meant not only the railway crossed over the new road, now called Beaton's Way, so did the new A14 bypass. Nearby, development, nearby more development followed, the Howard Estate, Beaton's Way is now a major road link from Mildenhall Road to Newmarket Road.
1: We are coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you have been given or a put or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We would like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo, and Newmarket Journal from whose pages most of our items have been taken. And so News Talk will be back again next week, so until then, from Katrina, Mary, David and
0: Carol, it's goodbye. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St Edmunds studio.